Changing what we eat can be terribly difficult, but it may also be the best way to sustainably feed the world. As climate change rages on, how can we make shifting diets more palatable? And how can the food industry help to sweeten the deal? This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Liang Lei. As part of a series of podcasts in association with taste and nutrition firm Kerry Group, we are taking a look at how to prod people towards eating both healthier and better for the environment. Environmental Group WWF made a pretty catchy suggestion two years back with what it calls a planet-based diet. It says that the best way to eat is not necessarily plant or protein or grain-based, but for each person to figure out what's the most sustainable foods in their hood. Governments can help by issuing better guidelines. These efforts, if done well, can result in healthier populations and greater biodiversity. Farmlands can also be turned into carbon sinks to fight climate change. How well has this suggestion set with people across the world? How can agri-food businesses and $8 trillion industry help to drive the needed change? Joining the Eco Business Podcast to tackle these questions are Daniel Campion, Sustainable Nutrition Lead for Asia-Pacific, Middle East and Africa at the Kerry Group, as well as Dr. Brent Loken, Global Food Lead Scientist at WWF. Great to have you with us. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you awesome. very much. Brent, let's start with you. Just want to ask how much progress has been made since WWF introduced the term planet-based diets back in 2020? Yeah, I would say that um, it's mixed. At the international level, the scaling and amplification of taking up food systems in various multilateral processes like the you know, climate conventions, biodiversity conventions, land use conventions has been quite high. I mean, last year at COP26 that we had in Glasgow, there were more food events than we have ever seen at any other COP before this. I mean, you couldn't turn around without seeing somebody talking about food, which is a, extremely good. And uh, that, that was really wonderful to see. However, the focus on food systems approaches and certain aspects of the food systems, especially when we're talking about dietary shifts, is, has still not made it into the final text and it's still something difficult for some countries to want to talk about. COP27 this year, we are seeing even more food systems um, things happening. There is a lot of pavilions that are focusing on food. People are talking about food. The IPCC Working Group 3 um, report, which came out last April, uh, had food as one of the main levers and food systems as being one of the key things that we had to talk about. So this is all great at like the global international level. Well, what we still need to do, though, and where we need to pivot and really focus our work and actions is at the national level in terms of really trying to transform national level food systems, because it's going to play out so differently in countries all over the world. It's like this global jigsaw puzzle and how we put that together in terms of how food system transformation works in Singapore versus Australia versus Argentina versus versus Sweden versus the U.S. will look very differently. And that's where the focus needs to needs to really work and you know, be at the moment. Gotcha, Brent. And, and just a quick follow-up. Are there certain geographies that are kind of more challenging in terms of transforming their diets, be it because of culture or geography or just where they are now in terms of what they eat? Yeah, this is not a very satisfying answer maybe, but I'd say every single geography 
poses a particular challenge. And, and it really depends on what aspect of the food system that you're talking about. I would say talking about dietary shifts might be one of the most challenging aspects of the food system it is to talk about, especially in, in some places. And I would say there's certain parts of the world that are more receptive to talking about dietary shifts at the moment. For example, Europe, you know, in certain aspects of Europe, I would say people are really starting to talk about, you know, reducing meat, you know, intake. There was a city in the Netherlands, which is actually banning meat ads which is a pretty radical uh, thing that they're taking on. And Germany is actually reducing their overall meat consumption, which for Germany is a pretty big move. So I would say certain parts of the world are moving in some parts of the food system, but uh, every single um, part of the world has certain challenges. I think yes. that's a really good answer, Brent. And, and just one thing I'd add to it as well is I think I think that's the strength in the report is, is the way it builds in that complexity around countries and it has an overall view of the food system as well and i thought the the build your diet tool that you have on your website as well is is really insightful in terms of being able to go in there and uh, make changes to your diet and be able to see the impact on your carbon footprint and, and biodiversity etc so I, I definitely recommend the listeners to check that out as well yeah Thanks it was a great read for me too and and daniel just just to stay on you I wanted to ask, you know, how does Kerry view the concept of a, a planet-based diet, basically? And in a broader picture, you know, how can food businesses contribute to such a drive? Yeah. And uh, so essentially in Kerry, we have our Beyond the Horizon strategy. And we very much see that as a farm to fork strategy across the food system. And I think it's because of that that is aligned with the vision of the WWF and enabling a planet-based diet. For us, sustainable nutrition is food solutions that maintain health in a way that protects society and the planet for future generations. So the way essentially that we'll deliver this is it'll be two pillars. The first pillar will be us achieving our commitments and we've set them up against our vision being better for people, society and planet. Um, so we have a commitment, for instance, to reach 2 billion people with sustainable nutrition solutions. We want to have a food system that works for everyone across health and safety, across responsible sourcing, across our partnerships and across our diversity, inclusion and belonging policies. And obviously where the rubber hits the road then is better for planet. Our commitments go back to farm in terms of we'll work with our suppliers on responsible sourcing on reducing our scope tree. When it comes to our own factories, we have a 1.5 degree aligned SBTI target of 55% carbon reduction by 2030. But we also look at our food waste, 50% by 2030, and our packaging that we want to be 100% recyclable uh, by 2025. The second pillar is where it gets really, really exciting. That's us working with our customers, co-creating on their products, um, and the scale that we can achieve by doing that, I suppose, as a business to business player in the middle of the industry is, is quite significant. So to give you an example, we have a range of technologies we call our sustainable technology platforms. So our taste and sweet technology, for instance, allows you to reduce down sugar in our customers' products. We worked with one customer and we reduced the sugar by 14 to 18% across two of their products. And because you're taking out the sugar, you're essentially taking out the CO2 and the water that was needed to grow the sugar. Uh, in that example, we are actually able to save more water through the food system, reducing the sugar on our customers' products 
than we use across all our Asia, Pacific and Middle East and Africa factories in a year. So that's that's what I really like about the role. That's what I really like about this strategy is that end to end connection. And I, I think that's very much what's intended from the WWF vision uh, and the planet based diets as well. Just like jump in here, because, you know, going back to your first question about how much progress has been made, I would say that this is a great example in terms of how much progress has been made since you know 2020. We've got businesses such as Carry Group jumping in and making these huge commitments, and we should not underestimate how significant this is um, and how important it is that we work together hand in hand with business to make this difficult transformation that we're asking of them, right? We shouldn't underestimate the level of ambition and challenge that it will take, but also um, we need leaders such as this stepping forward and showing that the, you know, showing the world that there is a better path for us to take. And and to talk about sustainable te- technology platform, that's certainly very exciting. But Daniel, just just one quick follow up too. From WWF's report, one major theme it advocates is really for different countries, different geographies to be aware of what is sustainable locally. Do you see the food industry doing enough of this? I, I think different countries are at different places in terms of their sustainable nutrition journey. The way that we're looking at it in Kerry is that we have a massive opportunity to make an impact here. If we can help our customers understand how we can help them have a lower impact, sometimes we'll have to educate them uh, or work with them, as we're saying, across the industry. So one thing I'm seeing as as an example is that um, if you take preservation, for instance, and reducing food waste, uh, not every company is, is noticing that that's a really key part of their footprint and reducing down the waste that they create will significantly reduce their footprint also. And across the food industry, maybe 30% of, of all food goes to waste. Um, so I think it'll it'll be tailored by country in terms of the journey that they're at. It'll be tailored by customer as well. Um, but we're definitely here to support and, and we're, we're here to try and make the move across the industry as well, um, wherever our customers are. This is a complex puzzle to put together, though, when you're talking about tailoring this for countries all over the world. Um, you know, and this is this is one of the things that we are working on within WWF is, is there a way of building a global food system topology where we could classify or group certain types of food systems based upon a shared set of characteristics? Um, and then once we do that, then are there certain actions that will work within these, these these certain groups of countries? By doing that, we take that overall complexity and we start to um, you know reduce it a bit. So companies like Kerry can then you know come in and instead of you know tailoring this for every single country, every single context, they're able to do it for groups of countries. And that's that's really the next frontline cutting edge research that uh, that we are working on and, and that we really, really need to start scaling on. Yeah, I, and I can see why you say there's some challenges that when you try to start grouping, you know, regions in the world, it really touches on cultures, identity. It's not just, you know, the growing and eating of food, right? So I guess that's where some of the challenges lie. So yeah, some of them, and it's not going to be perfect, um, you know, but when we're talking about transforming the food system between now and 2050, we're talking about a scale and a pace of change that is hard to wrap our heads around. You know, if 
we would have started this 50 years ago. It, we'd have a lot longer time to be able to make this journey and figure things out. So therefore, we're going to have to figure out every shortcut. Well, not shortcut, but every simplification factor that we can so that we can uh, do this in the, in the very short time that we have. Yeah, gotcha. And Brent, let's, uh, can, can I just stay with you for, for the next question? Um, on the same topic, essentially, that, um, you know, when you talk about diets, individual preferences, they can be really difficult to change once they're entrenched, right? So what have you found are some of the keys, I mean, the key solutions here? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because you hear that a lot, you know, it's so hard to change diets. And now, my my perspective on this is that I don't think it is that hard to change diets. A lot of businesses and through marketing, they've been able to change diets in certain countries pretty quickly within a single generation. Um, when you look at the fact that teenagers, uh, what you can do through advertising and targeted advertising to teenagers, they can change their diets pretty quickly. Um, and then and, and we can um, list a couple of individual countries that are going through a rapid transformation of more traditional diets into more of what you would call a Western diet very, very fast. What we need to do now is to reverse engineer that thinking and then to say, how do we make the adoption of um, traditional eating or healthy foods and eating of more healthier foods um, now, how do we make it sexy? How do we make it interesting? So that teens say, oh, wow, I want to I eat this, uh, this healthy food. I want to eat this salad or whatever it is because it tastes good, right? So, you know, and I think that if we can figure out how to do that, we will be able to very rapidly change diets and not change them to something new. Often it's just changing it back to what you were traditionally eating before or changing it back to what the you know, generation before you was eating. Yeah, the idea of making traditional foods sexy. I love that. And and Daniel, what's your thoughts on this? In a sense, you know, just drawing an analogy in financial markets, you know, we talk about price takers and price setters. And in many times in competitive markets, firms are price takers. So how is it like in the food industry? Are firms in this space, you know, taste or diet takers? Or can you be diet setters in a sense? Yeah, I think when it comes to this, this area versus other areas, it is a little bit more nuanced. So normally companies, I think, would be more price takers. They'd more follow consumer sentiment. They'll try and lead it in some places, but for the most, for the most, they're, they're followers. Um, so for me, uh, I think it's about making it easier for consumers to make positive choices. And, and definitely agree with Brent. I think the communication around that is quite important. We, we did a, a survey across the Asia Pacific, Middle East and Africa of about 7,000 consumers. And what we saw through that survey was that one in two consumers is willing to act on sustainability. But two key barriers that they called out were trust and price. Now, obviously, you're not you're never going to pay more for something that you don't believe is going to deliver what it's saying it's delivering. So I think having that framework where consumers can be really clear that they are making a positive choice is, is going to be quite important in terms of um, having them uh, push forward uh, a transformation. But what's interesting about um, the food industry and sustainability, as Brent is saying, is a lot of companies are signing up for commitments themselves. And I think it's quite important we take that duty on. And as we sign up for those commitments, we're going to have to deliver them. And in some places, we're going to have to lead the consumers to be able to do that. 
Um, so that's definitely another aspect. And I, I don't think any stakeholders should get off the hook, if I'm being honest. So when it comes to regulation, when it comes to taxes, when it comes to government pushes, I think that's quite important as well, that it shouldn't be easier to make a negative impact choice than a positive one. Um, but one piece that we, we definitely feel in Kerry is in terms of consumers making those changes. Um, taste and functionality are absolutely key. Nobody is going to choose, for instance, a reduced sugar salt fat product if the functionality of the product, the texture of it, or the taste of it is less than what they're used to getting. So that's why us taking an integrated solutions approach, um, being able to balance the total product is key to us being able to deliver that world of sustainable nutrition as well. There's an important point here, you know, about making it easy for consumers. Besides the marketing aspect of it that that can be done, consumers also need to be able to be surrounded by healthy food options. And it needs to be cheap and accessible for them. You know, we're all busy. You know, we walk into the supermarket. We've got our kids in tow. They want to get home. They're tired from school. And we tend to just grab things, right? We don't have time to sit there and figure out, oh, man, what's healthy, what's not healthy, uh, is this sustainable? What's what's the what's the carbon footprint of this particular food? It just we just need to make it simple, right? Um, and when they pick up something off the shelf, the easier that we make these like choices of busy individuals living in cities that don't have you know much time, the more rapid adoption we're going to see of these sorts of foods. I mean, there's something kind of idealistic about us all sitting down and putting our hands and vegetables and cooking food together. And I think that's great. But in reality, a lot of us don't have time to do that every day. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, some sort of measurement unpack, some some easy way of being able to tell, I suppose, how sustainable a product is, how healthy it is. I think that could be a key driver here of building momentum. Yep, convenience remains a big factor. I hear both of you, and actually, I I think it leads really well into the next question because um, Brent was talking about convenience, and I think Daniel earlier you mentioned that you know with your tech platforms you try to reduce sugar, improve the health and climate um credentials of sorts for the food, while keeping the good taste. So in a sense, you know there are two ways we can look at how we change the way people eat um from from a diet perspective, starting from individual diets. But there are also solutions from the opposite approach. Um, for example, plant-based burgers are plant-based proteins, which mimics what people already enjoy, which makes it, in a sense, convenient for them to take it up and still enjoy the health and climate benefits. Um, what's your take on both approaches? Daniel, can I start with you? Yeah, like for me, I think this this issue is so broad, it's so vast essentially we need to action it across all parts of the industry we need to action it across all product groups if that makes sense so if you were if you were to break that down into pillars we can definitely reduce the footprint reduce the impact of the products that we currently supply in the way that we currently supply them then a second pillar for me is we can reformulate or or we can provide similar products um, give choices to consumers that might have a lower impact. And the another pillar that we have that we shouldn't forget as well, though, is that we can provide positive solutions that taste as good or better than what they're currently consuming, 
Um, so we can essentially move consumers into substitutes also. And definitely the piece that I'd kind of bring up here again is, you know, if we are looking at reducing down the overall footprint of the industry, we can't forget food waste. Whatever that product solution is, we have to get down the waste against it. And Brent, what's your thoughts on this? I think at the end of the day, people just want to eat good food, tasty food. They don't necessarily care if it's completely plant-based or completely meat-based, right? Maybe some do, but I would say that a large segment of the population just want to eat really good food. So if, if we can get to the point where we're able to develop healthy alternatives, that's not just eating a salad, um, that do mimic maybe some of the more animal source foods and you know taste, and they just taste good. If we can get to that point, I think we're in a really good place. And I think we're trending in that direction, but we're still in the very early, early stages. Some of the plant-based burgers that you see on the market, I think, is a good first step. It's raised awareness of, of, of where we need to go. Some of them are not what I would call healthy yet, so they might have lower environmental impacts, but if if they have, um, if they're just as unhealthy as other, you know, alternatives, then I would say that that's not where we need to go. Or if you take a plant-based burger, and you put it in and slather it with uh, high-fat mayonnaise and everything else, well, you're kind of defeating the purpose of it, right? So, um, I would say that it's a, it's a good intermediary. It's still at early stages, and 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 more work needs to be done to make sure that they're not only environmentally friendly, but also they're healthy. Sounds like a challenge for Daniel to overcome. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I kind of want to go into, um, you know, putting the discussion into the current context. But before we do that, can I can I just jump in with another quick fun one? So I'm just wondering for both of you, what's your diet like and how far is it from a planet-based diet? Brent, do you want to start? It's pretty close. I, I am a firm believer of you have to practice what you preach. Um, and you, I, I would be, it would be hypocritical for me to go out and to say that we should be eating this way and to not eat this way, you know, myself. I would say, um, so I would, I would classify my diet uh, more as, more as flexitarian, um, where my main protein sources come from fish. Um, I eat a little bit of chicken, um, but I would say if you're looking at the planet-based diet, I follow it pretty closely. Cool. And you're in Stockholm, right? Yes. And Daniel, you're in Singapore. How about you? Yeah, uh, similar answer, I think. So I, I would describe myself as flexitarian as well. So what we're what we're kind of targeting ourselves with is uh, six days, either vegetarian or vegan, and then one day meat based. Um, so what I would say is I actually come originally from the, the southwest of Ireland and in my opinion, we have some of the best beef and lamb kind of in the in the world. So um, I think being able to have the balance of having some red meat, but not having red meat every day is definitely kind of important to me as well. Um, and I suppose, but at the same time, being clear that my diet does have a lower footprint because I'm balancing it out with increased veg. Uh, I think gives me comfort to sleep at night as well, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know, with this, with this, I, I don't think it helps to shame people for what they eat. Um, so I think that whenever we're talking about diets and what people eat, we have to be very, we have to have a very large tent, and we have to bring bring people along that journey with us. You know, last summer I had a, 
Um, I had a steak, the first steak I've had in probably two years, and it was really good, you know, and I think we have to leave the door open for that type of enjoyment of food. And if and, and, and if we don't, we're we're, we're going to lose this battle. I think, yeah, I think that's a key point. I definitely agree with that. And it's not just food, right? It's, I, I guess it's a common principle across all types of behavioral changes you want you want people to to do. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I would love to end this conversation on, on a light note, but I guess we are talking about something pretty serious and important. So I'm just going to jump back to that for the last question. What are the biggest challenges to kind of um, the planet-based diet and food security now after two years of we've seen a lot of disruptions, right? There was COVID, there was the Russia-Ukraine conflict that got a lot of grain locked up. Um, there were climate-induced um, bad crop yields in India, now Pakistan, and an economic crisis in Sri Lanka. So I'm just wondering, through all this, are there any learning points or is there a need to relook at any top priorities? Um, Brent, you want to take a lead on this? I'm happy that there's more emphasis on food systems now. And the last couple of years has definitely put an emphasis on food systems. But the problems that were there were there before these crises happened. And those of us that have been working on food systems have been talking about it for a really long time. So there's nothing new that have come out of these crises that that we should look at it and say, oh, we, did, we didn't know this because we did know this was coming. Um, what we needed was a huge global shock, such as the whole world shutting down to like COVID um, or a lot of grain getting locked up and, uh, and not being able to be you know, sent to the places where it actually needs it for us to shed some light onto this. Um, so, you know, we know what needs to be done. We just need to do it. The, concern that I have, and I think one of the things that, that that should worry all of us is that as the world rapidly changes due to climate change, we're going to see more and more disruptions like this, more and more um, global chaos to the to the food system. So what we have seen the last couple of years, unfortunately, if we do not change paths, is going to be more of the norm than anything else. And we're going to have to start to live with that. Uh, so, and the only way that we can do it is, you know, we're going to have to figure out how to not only only live with that, how to, you know, adapt, but how to rapidly transform our food systems in this new world. You know, and just just on that, just a recent skim of the headlines, I think will tell you the state of the planet at the moment. Um, we are potentially crossing some thresholds or like these huge global tipping points um, that could have globally disastrous consequences. And, uh, and that's unfortunately looming on the horizon. That's yeah. that's uh, maybe maybe Daniel, you should lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I I definitely agree with your your point, Brent, because um, so there there is some pieces happening in the last couple of years, but I suppose the underlying issues with the food industry have been there for a while, and and I think it's key for me that we don't take the focus off them. So, you know, we know, for instance, that about 2 billion people are obese, about up to almost 1 billion are, are malnourished. We know there's 30% food waste. We know about the, the biodiversity loss. We know about the increase in climate change events. The key piece for me, though, is we shouldn't get distracted from the actions that we can take. And when I'm talking to the teams, I always try and focus on the opportunity because there is some pieces still within our control here. And that's what we should focus on is building actions and building momentum against them. 
and that's one reason I suppose I'm I'm so happy with my role and the impact that we can have across the food system is because if we do work together, the scale of what we can achieve is is really, really significant. Um, and look, there will be certain areas that will be more affected in the future than they are today, but we still shouldn't lose sight of, okay, what can we do today to make it better? And if we're if we can continue a focus on action, continue a focus on the opportunity rather than the doom and gloom, I definitely think we can make a, a significant change in the future. So don't get distracted from the actions we can take. I think that's a great place to leave the conversation. Brent Loken and Daniel Campion. That was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks very much. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletters. Thanks for listening.